think it was on the second record actually when um, we did this interview in Newcastle with these guys from Juice magazine and Dan said something I don't know oh, yeah. something like there's, there's dickheads in Newcastle I believe it was Newcastle's full of dickheads <laughs> <laughs> not just a few but, uh, that wasn't good public relations move no but I just I just remember being backstage somewhere in 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 uh, in America and a manager coming in and going, guys, um, this is kind of blown up, and like you know, it was it just it was just really bad, and the gig it just felt that was a pretty low moment. It just felt uh, really bad. That was before we were aware that everything you said actually did <laughs> turn up in the interview. I thought, oh, they might put that in. Definitely not. I said, dickhead. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Too Much of Not Enough, a Silverchair podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Hedger, and today I'll be taking a look into the mailbag. That's right, this is the long-fabled FAQ episode. So even though this whole episode is kind of all housekeeping in a way, here's the actual housekeeping so we can get it right out of the way. Thank you for listening to the show, thank you for writing reviews and spreading the word. Again, if a friend of yours asks for podcast recommendations and they're into Silverchair or 90s rock or even just music podcasts, recommend them this one and they just might love it. There are, after all, still lots of Silverchair fans out there who aren't listening yet. I'd like to get them all. Speaking of reviews, if you can, please rank the show five stars and give it a review in Apple Podcasts because that actually really helps. If you're feeling really generous, you can donate to the show directly at the PayPal link in the episode description. I'm on Instagram at Silverchair Podcast and Facebook at facebook.com slash Silverchair Podcast. Or you can email me at silverchairpodcast at gmail.com, which is how this FAQ episode for the most part came about. And just a reminder that if you are thinking about becoming a podcaster yourself, I highly recommend Buzzsprout, which is my podcast host. It's a super easy platform to use, and they really take the hassle out of managing a podcast. So if you do happen to be looking for a podcast host, I highly recommend Buzzsprout. And if you go to the affiliate link in the episode description and sign up with Buzzsprout using that link, you get a free $20 Amazon gift card. Okay, with all that out of the way, let's get into these frequently asked and not so frequently asked questions. So why did I want to do a mailbag episode? Well, for one, I do legitimately get many of the same questions sent to my email or direct messages, and maybe people who haven't asked me directly would still like to know the answer to those questions. I also wanted to be able to feature some of the listeners, all of you out there, and give you a chance to share your stories, comments, and questions as well. 
To start with, I'm combining a few actual frequently asked questions that I get or used to get quite a bit. Now, to make things more interesting, I have used a lot of other music and interview clips throughout this episode, so my standard fair use disclaimer is pretty much void for this episode. But I hope it does make the episode more fun to listen to, rather than just hearing my voice rattle on for an hour and a half. Okay, let's get to it. So, question. How long does it take to put an episode together? Well, it's actually hard to say how long it takes since I've often been working on a couple of episodes at a time, at least in terms of getting things prepared. For some of the musical stuff, I'm drawing on things I've noticed in the music for many years, um, for all the years I've been listening to it. A really big help has also been having the sheet music to look at and notice things. I also try to give myself a lot of lead time so I'm not locked into producing something every two weeks. But in terms of how long from starting the first draft of something to the finished product, I'd say maybe two months per ep. Of course, now that I'm getting to the pointy end of things, that might extend out just because I don't have as many albums to cover and uh, episode ideas are not as obvious. Question. Can you interview me for the show? I'm a big fan. I do occasionally get this question and I'll answer it with my own question. Did you work with Silverchair or are you in fact in Silverchair? No, that's not fair. Uh, I understand that sometimes fans of the band just want a platform to share their own thoughts and stories. And really, that's one of the things that made me want to do this podcast. It's true that the last thing I really want this podcast to turn into is just me interviewing fans about how much they love Silverchair, but I also do understand wanting to be involved, and since there's nothing official happening in the Silverchair world, and I'll get to that a lot in this episode, don't worry, I have kind of become a bit of a focus point, for better or worse. I have had a version of this question that phrased it as, it might be nice for the boys to hear how loved they still are. Um, I wish I could be that confident that they care that much about their fan base in their current inactive band status. I think they largely know how much people appreciate their work with Silverchair. It's just whether they care about Silverchair anymore, unfortunately. Again, interviewing fans has never really been what I wanted this podcast to be, um, but I might have to come up with some way to get fans' thoughts out there, like a hotline or something, because, yeah, people do want to share their own stories. Question, when are you going to have Daniel on the show? What do you mean, Daniel? I'm in every show. Haha, <laughs> JK. So the likelihood of Daniel Johns appearing on this show at the moment is pretty low. At the moment, that is. Judging by the random images he occasionally posts on Instagram, it looks like he is working on new music, but when that will actually get released is anyone's guess. I got lucky having Ben on the show because he had released new music and was keen to promote it. I do, however, have it on some authority that Daniel has heard the show and that he knows the offer is there to come on the show when he's ready. So maybe once he's released new music and is open to doing media, maybe I'd be on the list. But since we all know that he's not a fan of doing interviews in general and any press he does gets a lot more attention, both because of his profile and ironically because of how little press he does, he still might not want to do it. And to be honest, I'd be a little afraid of the attention this show might get if I'm one of the few outlets that actually gets to talk to him. I don't want to let fans down, but I also want to respect what Daniel actually wants to do. So we shall see. Question, you should have Silverchair's roadies and sound crew on the show. That's not a question, but interesting point. Um, I will say that I'm not against having those kind of behind the scenes people on the show, but again, 
I've never really wanted this show to be just interviewing people who have some tangential connection to Silverchair. I've really tried to make this a serious music podcast rather than a fan podcast, though I know I straddle that line at times. I'd be more open to talking about Silverchair's live sound techs for sure, since this show is obviously more focused on the sound of the band, and I would like to know some of the ins and outs of how their live show looked from a backstage perspective, but I'm also very wary of going too outside the bounds of my original premise for the show. Question, can you get John Watson on the show? I would love to get Silverchair's former manager and founder of the Eleven record label on the show. However, I am sort of strategically waiting until I've at least done my Young Modern episode to try and get in contact because I don't know who owns what and whether when I use Silverchair music in an episode, it's his copyright I might be infringing because he owns 11 music. I say at the end of each episode that I believe I'm using all copyrighted music under fair use, but fair use is a tricky thing in Australia and isn't as fierce a defense here uh, as it would be in the States. And since nobody can give me a straight answer about who owns the Silverchair business or what those arrangements are, I am slightly wary of getting in a situation where I alert him to the existence of this podcast and he says, by the way, you're not actually allowed to be doing what you're doing. Now, that's not necessarily what I think would happen. Everything I've heard or seen about Watto suggests he's not that kind of person, but he is still a successful business person who might not take kindly to people using material he owns. It is frustrating that I can't find the answers to those kind of questions, though, because I do feel like I'm moving a little in the dark as much as I've tried to do things the right way. I was recently talking to former guest Richard S. He about these kind of issues, and I said, it's like I have to break the law to work out whose copyright I'm actually infringing. Anyway, that's a long answer just to say, would absolutely love to chat to John Watson when the time is right. Okay, these next couple of questions are, again, vaguely a composite of questions I do get, but um, I'll quote from a specific email I did get. Question, I'd like to ask simple questions like, what music do you like, how long you've played, gigging experience, all that stuff. I hear you've done singing, so yeah, it'd be cool to hear who's behind the cast. Um, I'll get to some of the music I like in more detail, because it does come up later, but very broadly, I'm into a lot of different stuff. Some of my favorite artists ever are Fiona Apple, Propagandi, Devin Townsend, Manic Street Preachers, Rufus Wainwright, Mr. Bungle, Frank Zappa, The Beatles, but I don't think that really tells you much about a person. Everyone likes The Beatles. Um, also, one of my favorite things in the world is English art song and German Lieder, which are types of 19th and early 20th century classical music, I guess you'd say. I'm a baritone in uh, vocal style, so that's the kind of music that best suits my voice. Uh, on the second question, I've been singing for as long as I can remember. Uh, my mom is a singing teacher, and I've played guitar since I was around 11. I've been in bands when I was 15, 16. I was in a pretty crappy new metal-esque band called Rise Above. I was in a metal band called Evasive when I was 17, 18. And I was in a weird kind of Mr. Bungle ripoff band called Go Go Action Bears when I was 19, 20. For the past decade plus, I've sung with two big bands, swing bands, 18-piece uh, bands. So we play jazz standards, Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., that kind of thing. And in terms of my musical education, that's been super helpful and rewarding. You really learn about how arrangements function and how a vocalist is meant to sit within a band. And you also notice when someone doesn't know those things because they haven't realized certain things that are there within the music. 
Plus, playing with players who have been around and playing for, you know, some of the people in the bands I'm in are in their 70s and 80s. Uh, playing with them is just really educational as well. Anyway, moving on. Question, what have you been taught musically and even personally through revisiting the chair? Good question. I have definitely learnt things, but I'm not sure if I can articulate them. Let me try. It's definitely tested my ears and my sight reading for when I have the sheet music. Looking at the actual music is something that I found very valuable. Music is magic to a lot of people, but it's also magic to me a lot of the time. It's often only when I sit down and work out how to play something, usually by looking at a chart, that I see what's actually happening and how the magic trick works. And that goes for songs I don't or didn't particularly like or consider my favorites. So I think what doing this podcast has taught me about Silverchair is that even the songs that I wasn't necessarily looking forward to covering would often, with some musical archaeology, turn out to be really interesting and better than I originally thought. And this isn't something it's taught me, but rather just reinforced my love and appreciation of good songwriting. In terms of what I've personally learnt, doing this podcast has made me realise I can make something that people are interested in, which is very personally rewarding. I can see new slivers of opportunities and ideas that I don't necessarily think have been available to me before. Okay, moving on again. Question, what did you think of the recent review podcast that did a three-part series on Frogstomp? So you probably heard about this, but there was a podcast released by a Queensland outlet called The Music. Um, I think they're getting into podcasts now and calling that channel The Podcasts. Um, So apart from the fact that it's hard to remember the name of it, I think it was really well done. It spoke to essentially almost every person you'd want to speak to about Silverchair without actually being able to talk to Daniel Johns himself. Um, And the host got great answers out of everyone. I even learned a few things. So it was really great from a biographical and historical perspective. However, I will just highlight that it spent three long episodes on Frogstomp and didn't or wasn't able to use the music from the album at all. Now, maybe it's because they are running this podcast as part of their business and they don't want to get into rights problems, uh, which is really depressing that that's probably what it was. And every time I think about monetizing this show just to cover my own costs, the fact that I'm using all this copyrighted material puts the kibosh on that a little. That said, in the course of making their podcast, they were talking to, I would assume, all the people who would know the answers to those questions about what the rights are, who holds them, what they could do under fair use but there's still no copyrighted music in that show. Very interesting. Moving on to the specific emails and DMs. This is an email from listener Dan Seaman. Question. In the US, when Diorama was released, I swear there was a box quote from Bono from U2 that said something to the effect of, this album is amazing. Swim to Australia to hear it if you have to. It's that good. I haven't been able to find anything about it online, and I am starting to think I imagined it. There's got to be a story there. Are you familiar with this at all? If so, could you speak on it? Yes, I have heard this story. I don't recall whether it was used in any marketing, but obviously, if you remember, it might well have been. Uh, But the story goes that while they were mixing Diorama in LA, Daniel was at a party with, I want to say, one of the engineers, 
Uh, it might have been Bono's party, actually. Anyway, for some reason, they had an early mix of Love Your Life, and Bono insisted that they play it for him. The story goes that Bono loved it and kept playing it over and over, which is when he said the line you quoted, swim to Australia if you have to. And apparently Billy Corgan was at this party too. Jeff Apter recounts this story in at least one of his Silverchair books. But also, Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins did an Instagram Q&A in 2018, where he was asked whether it was true that he and Bono were the first people to hear the song, and he said, true story. Elsewhere, uh, Billy Corgan has actually talked about this and said, In the beginning, I just viewed them, Silverchair, as a cute teen band riding the grunge wave. Then they seemed to go away for a while. So when I heard they were all grown up, I didn't think much of it. But when I came across what they were doing, I was struck by the brilliance of it and the honesty in it. And I realized how wrong I'd been. Who wouldn't at such a young age get caught up in what's going on around you? Because we all assume our influences. Daniel has grown out of those influences and become his own man, a very special butterfly with so much to offer, and I've been a fan ever since. So there you go. True story. This one comes from listener Paul Sinclair. Been loving the podcast here in the UK. I've always wondered who Silverchair's live engineer was. They always had an incredible live sound, and I wondered if you could find out who was behind the desk. Thanks, Paul. Good question. I'm not sure whether they had the same crew they always worked with or not. Um, I can say that I believe Kevin Shirley did the live sound for one of their big festivals they did, Rock in Rio maybe. I don't know whether that was happenstance or if they specifically asked. Kevin, aside from anything else, is well known as a great live engineer. I think Nick Lornay mentioned that in my chat to him, that Caveman had done the sound for a live Led Zeppelin album. Um, as for Silverchair, the Live From Fireway Stables DVD lists Chris Thompson and Stephen Schramm as the live engineers. And there's a guy named Brent Gray, who was apparently their front of house engineer at some point. There's a YouTube video from around the young modern era where he talks about that. Um, I know I just mentioned how I wouldn't be against talking to their sound guys, but um, yeah, for the most part, I'm actually not sure. I might have to send this one out to the hardcore fans who would almost certainly know. So uh, hit me up. This one comes from Spike Eskin. Question. I'm not sure what my question is. This is more of an observation. As most of the comparisons to American bands seems to be of the grunge variety, I actually see a lot of comparisons to Guns N' Roses, obviously less dysfunctional. Band starts out raw and young with a collaborative writing effort. The singer becomes to get bored and wants to do something bigger and more orchestral. For Axel, this was November Rain and Estranged, before eventually wanting to take over complete writing duties. Difference here is Axel is a total asshole, and the rest of the guys in GNR didn't go along with it. All of the members do interesting things since the breakup, but nothing matches the magic of the original lineup. Great job on the pod with Ben. Interesting idea. I hadn't thought of Guns N' Roses as a comparison point at all. Not being super familiar with Guns N' Roses' full discography and history, um, though I know the broad strokes, it's hard for me to necessarily agree or disagree. However, it does make me wonder if the GNR comparison would be specific to Silverchair, or just that a lot of bands go through a similar trajectory. A lot of bands have essentially one member take over writing duties for a variety of reasons. Pink Floyd comes to mind as well. Though, if you ask Roger Waters, he would just say that no one else in the band was actually bringing anything to the table, and he had to write the rest of the material. Spike mentioned Silverchair being obviously less dysfunctional, and I think the interpersonal dynamic is one of the biggest reasons that this GNR comparison doesn't really work for me. For whatever reason, Daniel, Ben and Chris stuck together through everything and never seemed to be at odds with each other. 
Um, now, whether that was their management keeping things so locked down that no rumors of creative differences or fights really ever emerged, or whether it was just, as I believe, they never really had those fights. I know that Spike is American and maybe not familiar with how Australian males, especially from a town like Newcastle, would be around each other. But yeah, we bottle things up and maybe keep things to ourselves, especially when it's not in our best interest to rock the boat. And I think a lot of this take, if you like, is built on the idea that only one member wanted to change direction. And I don't think that's true with Silverchair. Uh, so while it's true that Daniel did take over the writing and basically barred the others from writing, specifically Ben, around the time of Neon Ballroom, there's never been a suggestion from Ben or Chris officially that they would have preferred to stay in a more basic hard rock style at all. I'm sure Ben was personally hurt, but you have to remember that in 1998, when the guys in the band were still only 16, 17, Silverchair almost broke up. And at the time, it was more important for them to all stay together as a band because they were friends, and that mattered much more than the music they happened to make together. There is no interview that I know of where Chris or Ben speak negatively about the music they made together after Daniel took over the writing duties. And that's a decade's worth of material where people could be reading into their comments. And at least for me, I haven't seen any of that. Ben and Chris were always the laconic, laid-back, larrikin members of the band, and it was often hard to get a read on them anyway. But you would think that if they weren't happy, it would have come out somehow. On the contrary, they were always effusive about how much they enjoyed playing whatever the latest album was. Just because Daniel became the sole songwriter doesn't mean that Chris and Ben's musical tastes had stagnated. Now, there is a big but to this, which is that nobody really knows the true story behind the indefinite hiatus of 2011. You know, one minute the band were in the studio recording and playing gigs to fund the next album, and then the next minute they were announcing a breakup. Something happened. I'll talk about that later. I think there's also something to the idea when it comes to Silverchair that none of them publicly went off the rails in a sex, drugs, and rock and roll kind of way that materially affects a lot of other successful bands, which is one reason I find it hard to compare them to any of the more hedonistic bands like Guns N' Roses. So I guess I have to disagree with the caveat that there might be more parallels with Guns N' Roses that I'm not aware of, but I would still think that any parallels you can find would also be parallels with any number of successful rock bands. Do you disagree much? Uh, the three of us? Mm. Um... They're not really, I wouldn't call them disagreements. Uh, what would you more, call them? Just more heavy arguments. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, don't, we honestly don't. Yeah, really. Uh, we don't hardly ever have arguments or anything like that. I think the way when we feel like arguing, we just go home for a couple of days and get over it and come back <laughs> and go hey, again. <laughs> I don't think we really ever... I don't think anyone... I, can't, I honestly can't remember a time when we've been sitting down and we've had an argument about something. No, no. I can't remember one, one example. This next email comes from Jed Nadlin. Question. Hey, Daniel, big fan of the show. Thanks. Thanks for always replying and shooting shit on Instagram with me. Sewerchair was the first band I really got into myself after only really listening to my parents' music. I even made my mother take me to see the 1996 tour at Festival Hall in Brisbane when I was nine years old. I think growing with Silverchair really spoiled music for me. For a long time, if I didn't hear some complex harmony or an obviously trained or disciplined musician, I wouldn't give it a chance. If it didn't have the musicianship of a Malmsteen or Racer X or the theory and practice of Steve Vai or Devin Townsend, I was out. 
Anyway, there's a whole lot of pointless personal history, but here's the actual question I'm building to. You've mentioned Dream Theater a few times on the podcast. There's a bit of a producer-mix-engineer crossover between them and Silverchair. Do you think the average Silverchair fan could appreciate some DT? Could you recommend your listeners an album or two? Cheers again, Jed. Hey, Jed. As a fellow Shred metalhead myself, this is an interesting one. I have a similar development in my own musical tastes. So obviously I like Silverchair, but I did have a few years in the wilderness in my teen years, usually between Silverchair albums, where I, like Jed, prioritized super technical stuff over anything else. This was also partly a reaction to new Metal, which was happening concurrently with my teenage years. And so as a gatekeeping little shit, it felt good to say that's not real metal to people into Limp Biscuit or whatever. I eventually got over myself and opened myself up to a much wider variety of music. So by uni, I was more or less open-minded about music and enjoyed myself a lot more as a result. Incidentally, Jed has brought up one of my favorite artists, Devin Townsend, who is still to this day one of my favorite artists and musical heroes. I was also really big into Steve Vai as well, who I've also seen live. Uh, Not so much Malmsteen. And for those unfamiliar with those names, these are shred guitar heroes. Though for my taste, Steve Vai was the one who had proper melodic songwriting chops rather than just technical ability. As for Dream Theater, and I admit I'm not a super fan, but for whatever reason, I absolutely love exactly one of their albums, Metropolis Part 2, Scenes from a Memory. But everything else is a bit hit or miss for me. As for recommending something that Silverchair fans might appreciate from Dream Theater, I don't know how much crossover there is, but for an album, obviously, I recommend Scenes from a Memory, uh, and maybe for an individual song, Strange Deja Vu. But to be honest, there's not much of the same musical or melodic sensibility uh, as in Silverchair. However, assuming that you like Silverchair, but you also have an open mind about music, you might still get something out of it. Closer, actually, might be Devin Townsend, who I think of as a much more emotionally driven songwriter than the cerebral dream theater. Again, it's not very similar stylistically and a lot more lyrically direct than Daniel John's, but Devin is still someone that fans of Silverchair might get something out of, particularly because of how Devin's life journey has influenced his music in much the same way that Daniel's has. During lockdown, Devin actually started releasing a podcast, it's called the Devin Townsend Podcast, where he goes through his discography and talks about what was happening in his life and what each album means to him. And it's a really fantastic insight into why, for example, he broke up his band Strapping Young Lad and why he's routinely changing the members of his live band when he feels he needs to do something different, which is something that never happened with Silverchair, by the way. It would have been very easy for Daniel to tell the other guys in the band, oh, I need a different drummer for this song. I need a different bass tone for this song. But he never did. He always gave Ben and Chris the opportunity to rise to the challenge, and I think they always did. Anyway, Devin Townsend gives me massive Daniel Johns vibes in that sense. 
In fact, going back to Spike's email, Devin Townsend is a bigger comparison, at least, to Daniel than Guns N' Roses. The big difference with that, of course, is that Devin Townsend is a very prolific artist and has released something like 24 studio albums plus live albums and EPs. But again, sonically, it's quite different. It's much more in the progressive metal realm than anything Silverchair approached. But if I was going to recommend anything from Devon that Silverchair fans might appreciate, I think it's his latest album from 2019, which is called Empath. Uh, It's probably a good sampler of everything he does well. Also, depending on your YouTube algorithm, you might have seen Devon pop up in one of those Singer Reacts To videos, because there's a video of him performing his song Kingdom that's done the viral rounds, um, at least in the React video genre. Actually, definitely check that out. The thing about recommending other music for Silverchair fans is they have such a wide appeal, especially in Australia, that I'm not sure what people want out of a recommendation. Different people like different sides of Silverchair's work, and I think the fact that they were such good syncretists of other music is what appeals to people, rather than the pure uncut forms of those things. Having said all that, I think an artist that fans of Silverchair's more orchestral Baroque work might enjoy is Rufus Wainwright particularly his albums Want One and Release the Stars. I actually highly recommend him if you're into that side of Silverchair, particularly the Diorama era. Check him out. Since Jed brought up sharing producers, I'll also give my recommendations of who to listen to for each of their collaborators. So for Nick Launay, it has to be Kate Bush. Listen to The Hounds of Love. Though technically that's not the album Nick worked on, but give me some leeway here. David Bottrell, rather than Dream Theatre, I'm going to pick his work with Coheed and Cambria, uh, another sort of prog metal band, but have a real pop leaning as well, whose third album is one of my absolute favourites. That's called <gasps> Good Apollo, I'm Burning Star 4, Volume 1, From Fear Through the Eyes of Madness. Whew. Van Dyke Parks, obviously I have to go with the Beach Boys and Brian Wilson, but I'll also throw in a special mention to The Thrills, an Irish band who Van Dyke worked with on their album Let's Bottle Bohemia. No kidding. 
As a bit of a tangent, it's interesting to think about what an acclaimed lyricist like Van Dyke Parks thinks about Daniel as a lyricist. Van Dyke is very erudite and metaphorical in his lyrics, which probably means he would appreciate some of what Daniel does, but I'm not sure Daniel's lyrics are in the same genre necessarily. Daniel doesn't like talking about his lyrics, and I've never personally heard him talk about them in relation to Van Dyke's lyrics, but let's try and do a little comparison. If you look at a line from Surf's Up by the Beach Boys, which Van Dyke wrote, The music hall, a costly bow, the music all is lost for now, to a muted trumpeter swan. The music hall, a costly bow, the music hall is lost for now, to a muted trumpeter swan. That's similar to the wordplay Daniel attempts in some of his lyrics, such as Somewhere Down the Barrel from The Dissociatives, where we get, And in these waters I'm waiting for a reason, after all it's in my head, I'm not a slave to a desperate lust, and in these waters I'm waiting for a reason after all. Anyway, moving on. This next one is from the guys at Sound Purchase Podcast. That's at Sound Purchase Pod on Instagram. Incidentally, I recorded an episode with Stefan and Jake on Neon Ballroom. So uh, I don't think that's going to be out yet. So watch my socials for where to check it out. Question. Is there a perfect song out there that Silverchair could cover? Likewise, is there a perfect Silverchair song to cover? And which artist would perform the cover? As in... Is there a perfect Silverchair song to cover for an artist that hasn't done one? As in, let's say The Greatest View by Collective Soul or Straight Lines by The New Queen with Adam Lambert. Bit of a stretch. Actually, very interesting question. Uh, The suggestion of Straight Lines by Queen with Adam Lambert is really intriguing to me. I think that's actually a really good one. Or even Adam Lambert solo. Here's my thing with anyone doing covers. I kind of have a bit of an inherent bias against covers, so an artist has to really work hard to get me on board. Actually, that's not quite true. I just have specific things I don't like in covers. Specifically, when a cover doesn't use the actual melody of the song they're covering, under the guise of doing their own take on it, there's having your own spin on a song, and then there's just not covering the song. I also think covers have to strike a balance between doing something different with a song and not completely rebuilding a song from the ground up. I guess what I'm saying is it has to be recognizable as the original song. And the other thing is, you never know who's going to do a good cover. Take that Silverchair Covers album from a couple of years ago. For my tastes, none of them stood out as being particularly great covers. But as we've talked about, Silverchair's a hard one. I don't know that their songs lend themselves particularly well to reinterpretation. They're also deceptively difficult songs, as I've talked about on this podcast. And usually for most other artists, I would say the mark of a good song is how much it can be stripped back to just a piano or a guitar and a vocal. But with Silverchair, it's hard to strip the songs back to their bare elements because the arrangement is often such an important part of how the song works. And also because Daniel's lyrics are very rarely direct and straight down the line, they often act as another texture in the song. All this is to say, I don't know who I'd like to hear cover a Silverchair song. As for the first part of the question, is there a perfect song out there for Silverchair to cover? I think the covers they did do in their career were all pretty good. 
I think the one that best fit them stylistically, especially for the era it was in, was their cover of Midnight Oil's I Don't Want to Be the One, which is basically the sonic inspiration for the whole Young Modern album, if you ask me. So for a song they didn't do but might have had a go at, maybe another slightly offbeat take on an Aussie pub rock classic, maybe Boys in Town by The Divinals, especially during that Young Modern era, would have been good. Moving on, this question comes from Lars Lindblad. And by the way, I should note that I apologize unreservedly for any names I might be mispronouncing. Question, to my untrained ears, there is something about Daniel John's music that makes me think he could work in musicals or movies. Diorama is the most obvious and Young Modern is a close second. But even before that, I sense that much of his songs have a flow and vocal style to them that I feel like I can imagine them being sung in the context of a rock opera or jukebox musical. Though, as you have pointed out, the actual lyrical content probably wouldn't work for a storyline. I'm outside the Australian market, so maybe he has done a lot more in this field than I am aware of. I recall some promo videos online many years ago that he was going to provide a score to a film called My Mind's Own Melody. I don't know the fate of that project though. I hope this makes sense as I am just a music fan, so it is hard for me to get the right terms. I guess the closest thing I have to a question is this. Do you get any similar feelings about his work from that perspective, and do you think he could find himself penning a Broadway show someday? You are asking the right person actually, Lars, as I am a big musical theatre fan as well as a Silverchair fan. But because of that, I actually don't think Daniel's music does lend itself all that well to musical theatre. Um, aside from the lyrics, which are obviously not going to work in telling a story, though that hasn't stopped many jukebox musicals trying to shoehorn pop lyrics into their quote-unquote story, um, the music isn't particularly theatrical to me. And I mean that in the sense that the structures of his songs are usually still pop rock based, and theatre songs tend to have a quite different structure. Though that said, there is a strain of contemporary musical theatre that is essentially indistinguishable from soft pop rock. For example, Dear Evan Hansen and Be More Chill. Daniel has said that he took inspiration from musicals for Diorama. I think Judy Garland movies is as specific as I've heard him reference. Um, and that is there most prominently in Across the Night, I guess. But what I think I hear in that more than actual theatre music is what people who don't know musical theatre's idea of what musical theatre is. I think I'm actually too close to both Silverchair and musical theatre to really objectively make comparisons because I'm so in the weeds on both sides of this that it's hard to step back and draw larger parallels. As Lars mentioned, yes, he did contribute to a short film called My Mind's Own Melody, directed by Josh Wakeley, with whom he also collaborated on the Beat Bugs animation. There is a YouTube video from a TEDx talk that featured some of Daniel's music for My Mind's Own Melody um, from 2011, though I don't think the film itself is readily available. I haven't seen it anyway. You've come to a place so broken unclear So lost for so long and so full of fear Let's tell me
Um, in terms of scoring films, I think Daniel is suited more to that. His Atlas piece, which was used for a Qantas campaign, was quite good. I'm not sure if that's the direction he wants to go, but it's an interesting path for him. Though I do personally feel that his style might be too much for where modern movie scores are actually going. This question comes from Carol Ross. Question. Did Silverchair tour the US for Neon Ballroom, Diorama, and Young Modern? I know I was busy working and had no money at the time, but I'm wondering why I hadn't heard of them until now doing my own research. Hi, Carol. Yes, they did tour for all of those albums, though obviously for Diorama it was a smaller number of dates, and then for Young Modern they were playing smaller venues because they were no longer on a US label and had less success with that album than they did back at home. In fact, they were essentially an independent band by then. As for why you hadn't heard of them, I'm not sure. It could be your age or where you lived in the US. If you're quite a bit younger than me and didn't come of age when they would have been biggest over there, it's likely you might not have caught them. You also might not have been into that genre of music or whatever radio format they might have been trying to fit Silverchair into at the time. Um, I'm not sure why you hadn't heard of them until later, but I'm really glad you did eventually. This one's from Jacob Kotner. Question. I am absolutely loving your podcast. Thanks, Jacob. As a lifelong fan of The Chair and getting to experience the albums as they were released, realizing that no one else knew how good this band was, I'm glad there is finally a show that sets the record straight. Ah. I will definitely leave you a five-star review, but I was saddened that you failed to notice the bouncing ping-pong ball in Tuna in the Brine. Knowing that you had the multi-tracks, I was sure you were about to talk about it, but alas, it never happened. I hope maybe you include it on a future episode. You can hear it from 3 minutes 20 to 3.31. As you know, they played a lot of ping-pong while making the album. Anyway, I can't wait for the Young Modern episode. Cheers. Jacob. You are absolutely right. I do not know how I'd never heard it before, but there is in fact the sound of table tennis in the background, not even really buried in the mix at the time code that Jacob mentioned. It actually took Jacob pointing this out to me for me to actually hear it. So there you go. Even albums I've been listening to for two decades have some secrets. Check it out. you hear it? This email comes from Daniel Jokic. Question. Hi, Daniel. Absolutely loving the podcast. Just wondering how you would rank all five Silverchair albums. And while you're at it, what is your top five favorite Silverchair songs and why? Well, I think this is pretty easy for me, at least with the albums. Top five from best to worst. Well, not that I think they have a worst, but most liked to least liked. Diorama. Neon Ballroom, Young Modern, Freak Show, Frog Stomp. I think I've made my case for why on the podcast. Top five favorite songs is trickier. Um, The Silverchair Facebook group that I'm in recently asked this question too, and I listed my top 10 as one, Asylum, two, Tuna in the Brine, three, Point of View, four, Paint Pastel Princess, five, Across the Night, six, Those Thieving Birds, Strange Behavior, seven, Black Tangled Heart, eight, Petrol and Chlorine, 9 Emotion Sickness, 10 Young Modern Station. Obviously, this changes from day to day and which album I'm currently listening to. You might notice that almost all of those songs are from the dark ballady side of their work. That doesn't mean I don't like their rock stuff. Obviously, I do. But I think where Silverchair stood out was on that other side of their work. Like I said on the second Diorama episode, especially at the time, I didn't care about straight alt-rock anymore. The stuff that holds up best for me is the arty stuff. So we've sort of touched on it a little bit, but I didn't get a specific question about 
what other music I like. So this might give you some idea of where I'm coming from when I approach these episodes. Um, the brief rundown of my musical evolution is, as a child, musical theater all the time. That's pretty much all my parents played. Um, when I was a little kid, pop radio in the early 90s. So this introduced me to pop and rock music, you know, outside of musical theater. Alt-rock and grunge in the mid-90s, Silverchair being a big part of this, obviously, along with Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, etc. And then when I got to high school, punk rock, heavy metal, and only true metal in the late 90s, early 2000s in my high school years. Um, after that, sad indie post-hardcore stuff in the mid-2000s. And this was around the time I started to really get into classical music and art song. But you should note that I always took my previous tastes along with me into the next phase. So when I was listening to sad indie, I was also listening to metal. So now I listen to a much broader range of music and I have most of my life as well. Though when you actually go back and look at what you were listening to, just by nature of the technology we had, it couldn't have been all that diverse. I would blind buy CDs and sometimes you got lucky, but often you didn't. For a bit more context, I'm going to list some of my favorite albums from each of the years Silverchair released an album, um, obviously not including Silverchair. I've tried to keep it non-retrospective, so these are the albums I would have been listening to at the time as well. So 1995, Silverchair released Frog Stomp. I would have been into Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness by The Smashing Pumpkins. This album just turned 25 and it's a perfect album. My favorite double album probably ever. Nineteen ninety seven, Silverchair released Freak Show. I was listening to City by Strapping Young Lad and Ocean Machine by Devin Townsend. Uh, I already talked about Devin Townsend earlier. He released these two albums in nineteen ninety seven, and they are basically the blueprint for the two different directions his music took after that. In 1999, Silverchair released Neon Ballroom. This was a big year for me and for music. Still Life by Opeth and Title of Record by Filter. Fiona Apple's When the Pawn. Rebel Extravaganza by Satyricon. The Fragile by Nine Inch Nails. California by Mr. Bungle. 1999 was a really good year for music, guys. I also happen to be 15, so that might be skewing my perspective. But all of those albums I still hold in very high regard. In 2002, Silverchair released Diorama. Um, this one is a bit of a cheat because I didn't get into this band until a little bit later, but it is my favorite album by them. And Silverchair didn't always release albums in particularly good years for the other music I was listening to. 
but Bright Eyes. Lifted or the story is in the soil. Keep your ear to the ground. This is my favorite Bright Eyes album, so I feel justified in cheating. But at the time, I was also listening to Robbie Williams' Escapology, Glassjaw, Worship and Tribute, Satyricon Volcano, Opeth Deliverance, and The Irony is a Dead Scene EP by Dillinger Escape Plan and Mike Patton. I know I should be brave But I'm just too afraid Of all this change And it's too hard to focus Through all this doubt I keep making this to-do list But nothing gets crossed Working on the record seems pointless now When the world ends, who's gonna hear it? But I'm trying to take some comfort 2007, Silverchair release, Young Modern I was listening to Tegan and Sarah's The Con What an album, I love Tegan and Sarah, guys I was also listening to Maximo Park, Our Earthly Pleasures The Thrills, Teenager Manic Street Preachers, Send Away the Tigers, and Bright Eyes, Casadega. I am hopeful, I just gullible. I am hopeful, I just gullible. And for the hell of it, some of my favorite albums of 2020 so far are Enslaved, Utgard, Phoebe Bridges, Punisher, Bright Eyes, Down in the Weeds Where the World Once Was, Protest the Hero, Palimpsest, Fiona Apple, Fetch the Bolt Cutters, Poppy, I Disagree, Stand Atlantic, Pink Elephant, Taylor Swift, Folklore, Rufus Wainwright, Unfollow the Rules, and Olva, Flowers of Evil. That gives you some context for where I'm coming from. Speaking of music I like, someone did ask whether I would put together a Spotify playlist or a couple of Spotify playlists, one with my favorite Silverchair songs, which I could do, and a second one with my all-time favorite music, uh, or maybe it was current favorite music. I'm not sure. Um, unfortunately, they asked me in an Instagram DM, and Instagram search engine sucks, so I can't find who it was. I'm really sorry if that was you. I mean, no insult by not remembering right this second. So people out there, let me know. Would you like me to put together a couple of Spotify playlists? Hit me up. All right, moving on. This one comes from Paula Campello. Question. I have a question for the FAQ episode. You said here you are a sucker for a good pop song. What other songs and artists do you consider good pop music? Good question. Often when I talk about pop music, I'm talking about it in a very traditional sense in that it's melodically driven, perfectly or leanly structured and hella catchy. So not necessarily what's popular in the moment, but something that has undeniable appeal in some way. 
but I'm going to try to go with the spirit of the question and not just recommend traditional pop music like Frank Sinatra, etc. Though I think a lot of pop music could learn from that era of music as well. So obviously the Beach Boys and the Beatles count here as well. Everyone should be listening to it. But what other more contemporary artists do I consider good pop music? Well, I mentioned Tegan and Sarah earlier, and even though they have gone through a few different phases in their career, the through line is that their songwriting has always been great. My favorite album of theirs is the sort of more indie rock album, The Con. But in the 2010s, they released a couple of electro pop albums that are really good as well. If I had to recommend one of their songs, oh, geez, this is hard. Um, Maybe the song Someday from their 2009 album, Sainthood. Something that I also associate with pop music, and this probably isn't a universal feeling, but lyrics that mean something and have a hook where the lyrics hit hard. And Someday has that. also throw out the pop punk slash easycore band City Lights. In fact, a lot of great pop music, power pop music, in fact, comes in the form of pop punk and second wave emo. Uh, My Chemical Romance's The Black Parade comes to mind as well. Perfectly crafted pop songs with heavy guitars and big melodies. It's pretty hard to beat, as unfashionable as that currently might be. Again, in a similar kind of genre, something like Against Me's 2011 album Transgender Dysphoria Blues also falls into this. My mind immediately does go to rock bands who write good pop hooks rather than quote-unquote pop artists, by the way. That's just my genre preference and what I like listening to. Um, But I also legitimately love, for example, Taylor Swift, in particular the Red album. That's just bulletproof pop songwriting. I guess what I would say is that I think of pop music as an approach to songwriting rather than as a genre. That's my get-out-of-jail-free card. This email comes from Kevin Brown. Question. Hi, Daniel. Thanks so much for all your hard work putting this podcast together. It truly is a joy to listen to. I have a couple of questions slash observations about two songs by Silverchair that I think were heavily influenced by two other bands. I was just wondering if you could give your thoughts on the similarities slash differences and whether or not you agree. The first is Leave Me Out. There is no secret that Daniel was a fan of Helmet. I think that this is shown to full effect when you listen to Helmet's song Speechless off their 1994 album Betty. Would you agree that the verses are very similar? The second song, or mainly the opening riff, is Slave. I feel that Daniel may have been listening to Mad Season and their song I Don't Know Anything. Anyway, you would be able to break it down a lot better than my untrained ears. Good luck with the upcoming new arrival. Thanks, Kevin. Hi, Kevin. Thank you. Uh, To start with, I have to admit, I don't hear much of Leave It Out in that Helmet song. To me, Leave It Out is a straight rip of Black Sabbath's song, Sweet Leaf.
However, I think you might have mistyped when you said leave me out and were perhaps thinking of Undecided, which I think is a bit closer to Helmet's song, particularly that rhythm. As for the Mad Season song, I have heard people bring this up in relation to Slave, and it's definitely closer. The notes are all different, but the rhythm is really close, and they both use natural harmonics in the same spot rhythmically. Though the fact that the two riffs are pretty close makes me actually think Daniel didn't rip this off, as counterintuitive as that might sound. Um, and obviously outside of that riff, Slave is quite different and much more, to me, musically interesting than the Mad Season song. The verses and the way the rhythm plays with the melody is much more sophisticated, in my opinion. The rhythmic changes and the shifts that the song has are way more creative than in I Don't Know Anything, which is a cool song, but it sounds like an offcut from an Alice in Chains album. Which makes sense because Mad Season was a supergroup made up of members of Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, and the Screaming Trees. You might be right, though, that people at the time brought these up, or at least the Mad Season song, um, as Silverchair ripping other bands off. And that's why, for Neon Ballroom, Daniel avoided listening to music at all, lest people accuse him of ripping someone off, even if he was doing it inadvertently. After all, he was going to get criticized for it way more than other artists. I think back in those days, Daniel was very worried about accidentally or otherwise, having a song that sounded like someone else's. It might have even been one of the keys to understanding the direction Silverchair's music took. After people calling them derivative and using examples such as that Mad Season song, Daniel might have just gone, you know what, I'm going to write music that does not sound like anything happening in music right now. Who knows, that might have been one of the motivating reasons for Daniel to decide that he couldn't co-write anymore. Maybe he was worried too much outside influence could come in if he wasn't the central arbiter of the songs. Anyway, moving on. This next one comes from Ryan Sims. Question. This question is broad, not really geared towards the music and probably vague, and likely impossible to dig up, but it's always been a curiosity of mine. I'm wondering more details about the art Silverchair used outside the music itself, mainly the cover art decisions for the records and singles, but also music videos and, if possible, the t-shirt designs. The band or management seemed to kind of lack good original ideas when it came to this stuff, and I wonder if it just wasn't important to them, or if it was important to them, but perhaps they just had bad taste. My opinion, of course. The Frog from Frog Stomp was rather well explained in the Rewind podcast, with the singles from that record varying quite a bit from one to the other. The Freak Show art meaning was pretty publicised during the promo, and each single was just replicate art from the gatefold. I've heard thematic references to Neon Ballroom being a mix of old and new, but the singles were all interesting photo shoots somewhere with the band, a dog and old storefronts. The diorama art just boringly seems appropriate for the title, with singles containing images symbolically referencing the lyrics from each song. Young Modern, I just know as the Mondrian art. Were these the band's idea? Whose specifically? Did they care about the art? 
Why did they ultimately choose these ideas? Similar interests in the origin of the music videos and official t-shirt designs. Ryan, this is an interesting question. First of all, I actually pretty much agree with you, but I can imagine a lot of people listening to this do not. So please take this as my and Ryan's personal opinion. I know that some people have some of this artwork tattooed on their bodies, and I know that there's people who won't pass up the opportunity to think any Mondrian art is a reference to Young Modern. So here goes. Overall, yeah, I think Sewer didn't always have a strong, consistent aesthetic. I think the best era for them aesthetically is Neon Ballroom, hands down. The album art is really good, and it runs all the way through the CD booklet and the live shows. This was Daniel in the sparkly outfits, glitter eyeshadow, and neon stage lights. And even Chris and Ben were dolled up a little, with the neon rims on Ben's drums, and Chris's sparkly bass and red pants. The video clips were all striking in this era as well. The CD singles were not really in this particular theme, but they all did match each other, at least. I think the Freak Show era is probably second best in terms of this, though outside of the song Freak, I don't think it particularly relates to the music, except in that superficial sense of a band being a traveling sideshow. I like the album art for that as well, though the band did not have an aesthetic on stage or in their videos that connected the dots. The singles from that album also had the same visual theme, which is really cool, and it did give them the opportunity to release that Freak Box set. But that's just what rock bands in 1997 were like. You have to remember, we were still at the tail end of the grunge era where the whole thing of just wearing what you wore backstage on stage conferred a sort of authenticity to your music. And Silverchair were in their teens. They were hardly thinking about visual style. Not many rock bands at the time were. So I don't blame them for that at all. The same goes for Frog Stomp. The cover is literally a stock image of a frog. And according to that recent Rewind podcast, John O'Donnell saw that on the side of a truck and had to contact the freight company to find out where the artwork came from. I guess that's what happens when you name your album Frog Stomp. The cover just had to be a frog. It is a striking image, and it's become iconic for the band, though I can imagine an older or more artistically-minded band naming an album Frog Stomp and deliberately not putting a frog on the cover. Here's an example. I just mentioned this album earlier. Manic Street Preachers have an album called Send Away the Tigers, and the album cover does not have a tiger on it. What it does have is a weird picture of two young women, one dressed as an angel and one as a devil, and in the background there's the Brooklyn Bridge. It's really eerie and evocative, and your mind has to make the connection to the album title and to the music, if there even is one. It sets a mood for the album, in any case. Another example, Fiona Apple's 2005 album Extraordinary Machine. The literal version of that title would be to have a piece of industrial machinery or something, right? but the cover is actually a budding flower about to bloom. It's a sideways take on the title. Diorama is really where I feel the artwork was a bit of a missed opportunity and could have been a lot better, especially when it comes to the singles. As Ryan points out in his email, they looked like what they probably were, which is early 2000s era 3D art. The video clips didn't relate to this aesthetic at all, really, except for Without You, which sort of uses that rainbow theme from the Diorama cover. I've never really liked the Diorama cover, even though it is my favorite Silverchair album. I would have loved to have seen any other concept art for Diorama and whether the artist was working to a brief from the band or whether they were presented with a few different options and that's the one that the band picked. I mentioned in my Diorama episode that there's a probably apocryphal story about the original title for Diorama being The Time Machine. 
Now, that would have been a cool idea, to use the artwork for an album called The Time Machine for an album that was eventually released as Diorama. It at least might have made people notice the cover more. And then, of course, you've got Young Modern's cover, which, of course, is a 3D rendering of Mondrian-style artwork. And I have never really understood what they were going for with it, unless it's just a reference to straight lines. Look, if Silverchair had legitimately found an artist with as striking a style as Mondrian, then it probably would have worked better for me. But since it's just a version of a style already well-known and without much of a different take on it, it seems like another missed opportunity. At least the CD singles all did match this, I guess, which I like. I also think it's their best titled album. Young Modern is a great title for an album, and for that album in particular. Obviously, it's hard to think about all this now since all of the albums do conjure up specific images in my mind, but I think that's more to do with association rather than actual aesthetics. Side note, I have been inside the Mondrian Museum in the Netherlands, but only just. I got as far as the front desk where I found out it wasn't a free museum and I had to leave. <laughs> anyway, I just don't think Sewerchair ever found a synergistic relationship with an artist who could translate what they were doing musically into something visual without just being totally literal about it. As dense and rich as the music often is on Silverchair albums, the artwork is pretty surface level and literal. Frog Stomp, a picture of a frog, literally a stock image from the picture library. Freak Show, sideshow poster art, sourced from Circus World Museum in Wisconsin. Neon Ballroom, a neon sign depicting ballroom dancers. Diorama, a door opening onto a rainbow. Young Modern, Mondrian artwork. You think about a band like Pink Floyd, who had Storm Ferguson, or the band Bright Eyes, who I keep bringing up, who have worked with Zach Nipper for almost all of their albums. These artists gave those bands a distinct visual identity that, although different from album to album, you could always tell it was them. It felt like, this is correct. And all their takes on the material didn't have to reference the music directly. It was more of a, that's right, an artistic take. Here's an interesting thing. On many of the Silverchair albums, the Art direction is credited to John O'Donnell and or John Watson and Melissa Shenery. That is, their management was in charge of the artwork. I don't actually know if that's uncommon. Great people, great business people as well, but notably not people from a visual arts background. In fact, on some of the albums, the credit is art and stuff, as if the artwork was an afterthought. Of course, I am neglecting to mention that an actual artist is credited on many of the albums. Kevin Wilkins, who is an art director and artist who did really great work on Powderfingers albums, particularly Odyssey No. 5, considering how bland that is as an album title. So he's credited on Frog Stomp, Freak Show and Neon Ballroom, along with Watson, O'Donnell and Chenery. On Diorama, we have the slightly weird credit, artwork designed by Darren Glinderman, John Watson, Melissa Chenery and Daniel Johns, slash created by... Darren Glinderman. It's not clear what created by actually refers to in that sentence. Then we also have the Diorama logo is a love police action, which is a company that I believe designs merchandise or does now. On Young Modern, we get artwork by Hackett Films, which refers to James Hackett, the animator behind the Dissociative's whole aesthetic. No mention of Mondrian. As for videos, I think those were less in the control of the band and more the realm of the individual video directors. I do know about the apparent conflict between John Watson and Jerry Casali, who directed the Freak video, over how much story versus how much of the band's faces should be in the final cut. 
And I have no idea about t-shirts or merch, unfortunately. I think those were pretty hit and miss, but that's not uncommon for bands to have wildly different merch from their album aesthetics. And I actually don't mind that. I really dislike buying merchandise from a band where it's just the album cover on the t-shirt or whatever. Considering all this, it is interesting that in interviews, Daniel often relates his songwriting to visual art. You hear him talking about songs in terms of being a sculpture or a painting, etc. But when it came to the visuals that went with his music, it wasn't as important, seemingly anyway. I think you do also have to consider the historical context. Musical artists these days are way more into establishing a visual aesthetic for each album and each piece of content that relates to that album. In the 90s and early 2000s, there was a tradition, if not an outright rejection, of that kind of thinking, especially for alternative rock bands. Caring at all about how you looked was selling out. And of course, again, massive disclaimer, this is all my own opinion, obviously. Jeez, Ryan, you're going to get me in trouble. So to answer your actual questions, I don't know who decided these things. It sounds like it was Daniel and the band talking to Watto, Melissa, and maybe O'Donnell and Kevin in the early days about ideas, and then maybe they took the lead on it. Or you might be right that they did have a lot of input, but just had <clears throat> questionable taste. I don't think about music like it's music. I think about it like it's a, it's a piece of art. Or, and that's why everything has to be different all the time. And it always has to be changing. They're, like, they're direct reflections of whatever is happening in my life over a period of time writing a record. When you say textures, this may be impossible for you to explain. It's very hard for me to actually see it the way you see it. What kind of textures are we talking about? The way sound in my head works is, is really, it's visual. I see it like the sound of that lighting thing. I can't stop focusing on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if I can hear, I, I hear something and then we'll add something else to make it feel or look warmer or colder or tougher or more vulnerable and all the sounds then usually create enough of a feeling where I can sing on top of it because I, d I know what I'm trying to paint with the, with the sound. This next one comes from Alicia Graham. Question. Hi, Daniel. I just wanted to know if you have ever been to a Silverchair show and in your future episodes, would you like to interview their former manager about his experiences working with them? Yes. I'm not sure if I've mentioned it on the show, but I did get to see Silverchair live while they were still together, but only twice, basically a decade apart. Oh, more than a decade, actually. I saw them at an all-Australian acts music festival called The Pushover in 1996, where I believe they headlined. However, and I think I did mention this in my Freak Show episode, that my auntie Claire, who worked at the radio station Triple R, chaperoned me as a 12-year-old at that whole festival, not just the Silverchair set. It's where I remember hearing Freak and also, I believe, Cemetery for the first time. As I think I also mentioned, uh, my auntie wanted to leave early, so I did miss the end of Silverchair's set. The next time I saw Silverchair was in 2007 on the Young Modern Tour, which I talked about with Ben Gillies on that episode at the former Metro on Burke Street in Melbourne. I can't even remember what name it was going by then. Maybe the Palace Theatre. Okay, according to Wikipedia, it changed names from the Metro to the Palace in 2007, but I'm not exactly sure when. It's a very sad story what happened to that venue. So yeah, I know that doesn't sound like a lot of gigs to go to, 
but I was a metalhead in my teens. And to a certain extent, I did kind of go off silver chair a bit, at least to the extent that I thought it was worth trying to scrounge together enough money as a teenager to see them live when I was also underage. This one comes from listener Ben Spangler. Question. Years ago, I read a comment on YouTube that Heath Ledger's favorite band was Silverchair, and I was wondering if you knew anything about that. I had to do a bit of research for this one, as I had not heard this story or fact. According to Heath Ledger's biography on IMDb, his favorite bands were Spiderbait, Powderfinger, and Silverchair. Now, IMDb is not all that reliable, but I will say that at least demographically it makes sense for him to be into those bands. I'm not sure about these days, but back in the 90s and early 2000s, it was much more common for Australian bands to be considered as good as overseas bands. Despite us having our famous tall poppy syndrome, the 90s especially, but even with the earlier pub rock bands of the 80s, Australian artists were not only world-class, but were also perceived at the time as being world-class, at least by Australians. So, you know, a band like Cold Chisel, for example, I don't think were ever considered underrated, except overseas. Whereas now people might discover or rediscover a band from a decade or so ago and realize, oh, wow, we really did have a good rock scene here, and maybe we didn't nurture it. Because there is the flip side to the tall poppy syndrome, where we don't respect an artist until they've had significant success overseas first. And with that in mind, I want to quickly mention a band that doesn't exist anymore, but I felt were criminally underrated when their self-titled album came out back in 2006. The band was called Starkey, they were from Sydney, and they had a take on that angular indie rock thing, but married it with excellent songwriting and impassioned vocals. As it happens, I wrote a review for that album for Beat Magazine back in the day, and I always felt a little bit bad that I wasn't as positive on it initially as I later became. Just one of the many pitfalls of music journalism is that you have to form an opinion after a relatively short amount of time, and sometimes albums take time to sink in. Anyway, this year I somehow came across the singer-songwriter of the band, Bo Cassidy, who is now an accomplished film editor, composer, and sound designer in LA. So I got in touch and told him how much that album had meant to me then and now. He actually got back to me and was really nice about it, saying... It's really cool to hear that something you did meant something important to someone else. Anyway, if you get nothing else from this episode, please check out the 2006 album Starkey by the band Starkey. S-T-A-R-K-Y. It's on Spotify. But as far as Heath Ledger is concerned, it sounds plausible, but I couldn't find any interviews where he specifically talks about Silverchair. So it's still a mystery. My friend and former guest on this very show, Richard S. He, asks, Question, are there any Silverchair songs you outright dislike or think were missteps for them? Ooh, interesting question. Are you trying to get my listeners to hate me, Richard? (laughs) Actually, I got this question from at least one other person too, so let me think. I don't like all the songs on Frog Stomp or Freak Show, but I think I said that in those episodes. Missteps is an interesting qualifier, though. Okay, thinking about it objectively, relatively, I don't think they really ever wrote any outright bad songs, but for sure I don't love all of the songs. From Frog Stomp, Leave Me Out, Madman, and Undecided probably get a skip from me, but then I don't really revisit that album often anyway because it still sounds to me very primitive, and yeah, if they had only ever released that album or albums that sounded like it, 
I wouldn't be here making this podcast. I don't think it's a scoop to say I started this podcast because I enjoy the later work more. Um, The same goes with Freak Show. I think I've mentioned that I'm not huge on some of that album. Roses, Nobody Came, and The Closing, I think, are in various stages of underwritten, but none of them are outright bad, nor do I outright dislike them. Of course, part of this is that Daniel's lyrics on the first two albums are significantly worse than on later albums, which is fine. It makes sense. He was only 15 or 16. But I think all of the songs on the next three albums after that are at least great, if not amazing. So, no, I think that Daniel and Ben's songwriting was always good enough that they never wrote or at least never released an outright bad song. Even a song like the Spawn soundtrack version of Spawn, which I don't think quite works, is down to the remix. The version on Neon Ballroom, Spawn Again, is great. In terms of missteps, that's an interesting one. If you've heard the demos or B-sides from the Young Modern sessions, it's fascinating to think about what that album might have sounded like. There's a much weirder version of that album in a parallel universe. So a song like Low or Waiting All Day, even though I think they're good songs, I don't think would have been the best direction for Silverchair moving forward had we ever gotten a sixth album. Those songs sound way more AOR than what I know the band were capable of in that era. I also don't hear them pushing their sound forward in any way on those songs. On those songs, for the first time maybe ever, but at least since their early days, Silverchair were being retro with their music rather than trying to break boundaries. Of course, I haven't finished my work on the Young Modern episode yet by any means, so I reserve my right to change that opinion. Moving on. This next one comes from Heavy Metal Gaza. Question. What are your thoughts on the band's performance of Steam Will Rise from the concert DVD Live From Faraway Stables? I never hear anyone talk about it, really. Like, I'm not sure what I think about the keyboard part. The rest of it I adore, by the way. That keyboard part feels strange and off. They just never seem to fit the vibe of the song and have never sat right with me. I also feel that the keys break the theme and feel of the song. It is very tight and harsh sounding, but the verse keys are very loose and don't fit with the bass and guitar parts. This touches on something I guess I knew existed in the fan base, but hadn't really considered that people maybe want the live versions of songs to be exactly the same as the recorded versions. As a fan, I definitely understand that. But as an artist, I could understand not wanting to trap things in amber and play the songs exactly the same all the time. And I think for the most part, Silverchair were actually really good at subtly changing the way they played things to keep things fresh for themselves live, and maybe the audience didn't always notice, but it was always there if you paid attention. I'm thinking in particular of how they would change the way that the freak riff was played. Now, as for Heavy Metal Gaza's question about the live version of Steam Will Rise on Live From Faraway Stables, uh, it definitely becomes more of a jam. This version is a nine minute long closer to the first set. As an audience member, I always get a bit antsy when bands extend their songs for a jam session. For one, because a lot of bands are not really good enough to jam and keep people's attention. And for two, for me personally, I don't like that type of indulgence on stage. And also, theoretically, it's also taking up space that another song could have fit into. Of course, it all does depend on what kind of band you're seeing live. If you're seeing Rush or something, you know to expect long songs and extended solos. But if you're seeing, I don't know, Blink-182 you probably wouldn't appreciate it. The main thing that Gaza, can I call you Gaza, brings up is the keyboard part changes the mood of the song, which is maybe true, but probably on purpose. The keyboard part, played by either Julian or Stuart, I haven't rewatched the DVD to make sure, uh, is playing these jazz chords in the verse sections against the regular arrangement. 
I don't know how successful it is as a live performance of that particular song, but it is interesting. I think overall, it's maybe not the best treatment of that song, but in the context of the whole live set, this song ends act one. And in that sense, I think it's a good closer. It closes the album Neon Ballroom after all, before coming back for act two, which opens with a longer take on emotion sickness, which I think is much more successful. thinking about covering live from Faraway Stables and or other live performances um, in their own episodes, so I'll have to marinate on that and save my thoughts on the whole thing for another time. This one comes from Benjamin Guevara. Question. I wanted to write you to let you know how much I appreciate the effort you've put into the podcast. Thank you. I've been contemplating doing my own podcast for the band Chicago, but I haven't gotten very far. I would want it to be as high quality and informative as yours. Can you tell me how many hours each episode takes to produce? How hard was it to get your guests? Any other advice you can think of would be great. Well, I did cover earlier how long it takes to put an episode together roughly, but I'll just briefly touch on guests. So I got lucky for most of my guests. For the most part, I just had to ask once I made sure that I had the correct contact details for the person. So far, nobody has really said no. I did have to be persistent and sometimes remind people that I had already emailed or tried to contact them previously. The good thing about social media is that it's not all that difficult to find at least the people I've been able to get on the show. I will give another big shout out to Nick Lornay, who I think probably opened the doors to the other higher profile guests I've been able to get. I actually contacted him originally to ask a production question about something on Neon Ballroom, which, by the way, I never ended up getting an answer to after everything. Um, But that started a conversation where he ended up asking if he could call me on WhatsApp. And we had a very fun off the record chat where he essentially made it clear that he was interested in coming on the show. Billy Martin was the same way. He heard about the show and emailed me essentially saying, hey, this is Billy from Good Charlotte. I love the show and I would love to be on it if you'd have me. Um, I did have Billy in the back of my mind already because I did know he was a big fan, but when he got in touch, he moved himself to the front of the queue. And Richard S. He, I already knew and always wanted to have on the show because he's very perceptive about music, so that was my easiest get. As for any other advice, it sounds like a cliche, but just starting is going to get the ball rolling. And by starting, I mean get your research out of the way, script your episodes, work out the structure you want, all the little stuff that makes it a lot easier to deal with when it comes to the recording. But on this, is this something people would like to know more about? How the podcast nuts and bolts work? Is that something I could do on a Patreon kind of thing? 
I have been considering this lately. Would people be interested in a Patreon, by the way? Is that up myself to assume? Anyway, let me know. This email comes from Jason Drake. Question. Hi, Daniel. What are your plans for the podcast once you've covered all of the albums? I would love to hear your take on the band members' other projects. Thanks. Well, this answer is going to get a bit into the weeds, so I'll just quickly start by answering the second part of your email. I obviously now have done The Dissociatives and I Can't Believe It's Not Rock, and I'm not against doing the other stuff, Tambalane, Bento, Dreams, Talk, but I'm not necessarily a big fan of those projects, so people might not like my opinions on them. Plus, I also haven't spent 20 years thinking about those albums. Like, you have to remember that if I'm good at talking about Silverchair's music, it's because I've had decades of time to have my thoughts percolate and bubble away. For some of these other projects, there isn't that same enthusiasm, and it might not be all that interesting in the end to do an episode, but we'll see. Now, what are my plans when I run out of Silverchair albums? Well, when I started, I didn't have an ultimate goal for the podcast outside of just being motivated enough to cover all the albums before I ran out of steam. And I think I'm on track for doing that. But what I never wanted and still don't really want is to get to Young Modern and then afterwards the show turns into an interview podcast. Because for one, as you might be able to tell, those aren't the kinds of shows I'm good at, nor do I enjoy the process as much. The idea for the podcast was to analyze the music of Silverchair, which obviously requires a lot of post-production and editing, which is a lot more work, but a lot more rewarding for me. I have considered down the track when I've totally exhausted all my Silverchair options, trying to morph the podcast into more of a general song or album analysis show, but for a few reasons, I'm not sure how viable that is. For one, all you wonderful listeners out there have signed up for a Silverchair exclusive podcast. It's kind of hard to back down from that, especially as by design, I made all the social handles at Silverchair Podcast, and that's my email address, purely so people would remember it and not the admittedly long name, too much of not enough. So I don't know how much of a listenership I would have if I tried to turn this podcast into either a general song or album analysis show, of which there are many, many more knowledgeable outlets if you like that kind of thing. Rick Beato's YouTube channel and the Strong Songs podcast, just to name two. However, please do let me know if you would be interested in another podcast from me along those lines, whether it would be on another feed or a continuation of this one. Another option would be to pick another artist and cover their discography. That does seem like the obvious thing to just move on to another artist. But the main reason I even did Silverchair is because I feel like without giving myself too much credit, I'm uniquely placed to talk about Silverchair. I grew up listening to them in the era they were coming up. I followed their musical progression in real time, and I have thought about their music for that whole time. In addition, I'm Australian and have that cultural context to bring to international listeners. I don't have those qualifications for really any other artist. In fact, Silverchair, as popular as they are here, have never really had this kind of scrutiny put on their music, whereas other artists have been covered ad nauseum, and I don't know if I have any authority on any other artists in quite the same way. Also, I somehow just get what Silverchair is doing musically in a way I don't get some of the other artists I might want to analyse. As I've said from the start, I made this show because I wanted to hear it, Someone had to do it, so it was me. In addition, any other artists I might be interested in enough to cover, A, might not really interest the followers I currently have, and I don't want to make you guys turn off, and B, has already likely been covered a million times, and for whatever reason, nobody had ever made a Silverchair podcast. I lucked out there. 
And C, I can't actually think of any other artist whose discography I could cover in the same kind of depth as Silverchair and still bring something new to it. That's not to say I won't or I can't, I just don't have another artist in mind. I also, by the way, would be turned off certain artists that I might be interested in doing just by their fan base. That's always a consideration. However, recently I have had a bit of an idea. Two ideas, actually. The first idea is the newest one, and that's that I could adapt this podcast into a book, expand it, do more research and interviews for it, and pitch it to a publisher. Whether or not that would be worth it for the publisher, I don't know yet. Uh, But I figure that if Jeff Apter has done okay with his Silverchair books, and that's an assumption I'm making, there is an audience for this. For a few reasons, I'm not particularly interested in self-publishing. First among them, that I would want the heft of a proper publisher and its lawyers to sort out the rights issues or reprinting lyrics and sheet music, which is what I'd want to do. Um, So that's the first idea, but it's still in its infancy. The second idea is, and it's very unlikely, but I think what I would like to do is become employed by Silverchair as a freelancer to manage and create content for a legacy web presence. As I've mentioned, because Silverchair broke up before social media really became a dominant thing, all of their official web presences, such as they are, are essentially not being managed. They don't have an Instagram presence at all. Good on those fan pages that nabbed at Silverchair Band and at Silverchair. One of those doesn't even allow comments or DMs, so I can't even confirm that it's not official, but they don't have a blue tick or enough followers for it to seem legit. I do actually have a theory that Silverchair themselves might have grabbed at Silverchair official, just in case, because that's a blank page, or at least someone did expecting that Silverchair would offer to buy it off them. As we know, Silverchair's official Facebook page is wallowing at half a million likes with only the occasional update. I should note, though, that a couple of those recent updates have been on the Rewind podcast. How'd they get that? And on Ben's new single. Unfortunately, they didn't want to share my interview with him. Silverchair's website, ChairPage, as you know, still technically exists, but it hasn't properly been updated since 2007 and is built on Flash, which is so outdated a lot of platforms and devices can't view it. And maybe you think, well, sure, but they're a band that's broken up. They don't need to have all that stuff. But to that I say, the Beatles are also not a going concern, but they have 3.2 million on Instagram and a blue tick. Ditto Frank Zappa, who is dead with almost 100,000. John Lennon, 2 million, also dead. Maybe more relevant, Powderfinger's Instagram is only four years old and only has 17,000 followers, but they also broke up in 2010, a few months before Silverchair did. And this year, Powderfinger actually reformed and did a COVID-19 livestream concert and has actually started releasing some previously unheard material. Legacy social media is a thing for big artists, if only to stop other people from disgracing their, well, legacies by maybe having an account that looks like an official account, but posts things they maybe shouldn't be posting. Or from selling knockoff merch to fans that just want a Silverchair t-shirt and have nowhere official to get one. Now, some of these pages and platforms I'm talking about are run by the estates of the people in question, and I don't know that Silverchair had a business or a trust that maintained all their work in the same way that the Beatles did, for example. I actually don't know much about the business side of who owns what when it comes to Silverchair, and it's hard to find anything out. As you heard when I asked Ben, he didn't want to talk about it, which is totally his prerogative, by the way. So I'm just left to wonder, is Big Fat Llama a real publishing company? I'm not sure. Does Eleven have any say over how Silverchair's stuff is marketed now, when it is? For example, the Frog Stomp 20th anniversary. 
we didn't really see any promotion of the 25th anniversary of Frog Stomp, which was this year, uh, which seems like a no-brainer in terms of social media content and generating new interest and business for the artist. I'm not even sure who runs their Facebook account, if anyone does on a permanent basis. Are John Watson and Melissa Chenery involved at all anymore? Who knows? I'll put it this way. Sewerchairs still have around 2 million monthly streams on Spotify. That's a lot better than many, many active bands. There is still interest in this band. On a purely mercenary level, Sewerchair could be making more money by keeping those platforms alive and revivifying interest in their music. But on an artistic level as well, introducing or reintroducing audiences to the music would secure the band's spot in the musical landscape and in Australian musical history. And I think I've shown with my podcast that there is still interest in this band, especially from overseas. So I think it's such a missed opportunity that we went past the 20th anniversaries of Frog Stomp, Freak Show and Neon Ballroom without all that much of a celebration. Sure, there was the Frog Stomp 20th anniversary remaster, which was actually quite good and included a track-by-track interview with Daniel if you bought it through Apple. And yet it doesn't feel like much was done on it. And that's because if there's nobody steering the ship from a legacy marketing perspective, there's also no focus or strategy. It's all willy-nilly. As Richard S. He said when we spoke on this podcast, Sewerchair might just be one well-placed song in a Netflix drama away from a whole new generation discovering them. But where are they going to look for this band? Sure, they're on streaming services, but what happens when they Google the band or want to find them on Instagram or TikTok or whatever? You want people who are still interested in the band to be able to find you. It also just happens that this is kind of what I do in my day job, so I do know a little bit about what I'm talking about. This is what I'd love. I would love for the 20th anniversary of Diorama in 2022 to see a legacy website and social media presence that is informative and celebratory of the band's work. And who knows, when these things come together, they do have the potential to reform bands. I'm not sure if Powderfinger getting 17 or 18,000 followers on Instagram was much of an impetus for them to bury the hatchet, but something must have happened. It was also the 20th anniversary of their album Vulture Street this year as well, and they got a lot of publicity about that, and people could look them up on social media and engage again. I know this is becoming a bit of a rant, but I just find it baffling that this doesn't already exist in some form. And to be fair, maybe the reason it doesn't exist is that it gives the fans somewhere to direct their requests and their love and their obsession. I've experienced it in a very, very tiny way, and it can be a little bit overwhelming. And so maybe the very presence of a legacy social media account would get people's hopes up too much and make people think that it does mean the band will get back together. I recently put the likelihood of Silverchair getting back together at 5%, and that's only because I want to hope. But hope is still a thing. And look, maybe my podcast isn't a great advertisement for setting up a legacy presence. I'm getting decent numbers, just over a thousand listeners per episode, but around a thousand followers per platform so far. Uh, I do get reach and engagement levels much greater than that though, but that doesn't necessarily represent a huge marketing base for kickstarting the Silverchair Renaissance. But I can't help but feel that it's a massive missed opportunity, especially if they ever did want to reform, because unlikely as it may be, Where are you going to announce that these days? You need to have some official platform. The media landscape is different to how it was in 2011 when Silverchair broke up. People still love the band, and it would make a lot of people happy to see something official from them, even if it's just an Instagram account with a shiny blue tick. (sighs) Rant over. This email is from Dom. This is a fairly long and detailed email, so I will try to condense it. Question. 
What are your thoughts on the song Without You from Diorama not actually being about a person, but being about antidepressants? Here's my line of thought. I feel like Without You was written as a follow-up to Paint Pastel Princess, and much like Asylum and After All These Years not being able to coexist on Diorama because they are similar, I feel the same for Without You and Paint Pastel Princess. Okay, I'll just respond to this first part and say that Dom is right that Without You and Paint Pastel Princess were possibly written around the same time. Without You was apparently written around the Neon Ballroom era. However, I don't hear much in common sonically with Paint Pastel Princess, though maybe in Without You's early version, it did. Dom goes on to say, Both of these songs are played using the open D-flat guitar tuning. The intro guitar chords for Paint Pastel Princess are the same chords but played backwards and a different strumming pattern of the main outro riff for Without You. It's fairly well established that Paint Pastel Princess was about the use of antidepressants. Maybe the you that Without You is referring to is about antidepressants. Okay, I would have to check that on guitar to verify, but interesting point. I can definitely read the lyrics of Without You to be about antidepressants. It would fit the theme of Neon Ballroom better than that of Diorama. Back to Dom again, he's quoting the lyrics. You, antidepressants, brighten my life like a polystyrene hat, but it melts in the sun like a life without love. The effects go away quickly. And I've waited for you, so I'll keep holding on without you. Yes, I've used you, antidepressants, but I can keep holding on or living life without you. Yeah, I I can buy that. I should say that lyrical interpretation is not really my strong suit, or at least it's not what I'm most interested in, especially for a lyricist as indirect as Daniel. But yeah, again, I think Dom has a point here. Uh, Dom further goes on to say, Also, it seems that Daniel references a lot of science in other songs using that same open D-flat tuning. For example, petrol and chlorine, which by the way are both detrimental to the atmosphere, petrol aka hydrocarbons, when mixed with a halide such as chlorine, can create compounds that can cause the ozone layer to degrade. This is why CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, are no longer used. Did I mention I'm a chemistry teacher? Emotion sickness, addict with no heroin, ignore the pill, burn my knees. Again, I can buy this. I think I need the dots connected for me a bit more as to what burn my knees has to do with science though. Okay, back to Dom. This could be one of the reasons why Silverchair continued playing the song Without You into their Young Modern Tour because it was cathartic for Daniel. He admits to hating singing the last line of the song, so why bother continuing to play it if it didn't hold some deeper meaning for him? Um, I'll field this one. Without You is one of their biggest hits and a relatively short, punchy hard rock song and there were fewer and fewer of those in their sets as time went on. I think that was more a consideration than what Daniel might feel was more cathartic. My personal opinion is that once Silverchair had completed touring on an album, the next time they toured, the songs from the previous album did not emotionally affect Daniel in the same way to play live. I know around the time of Neon Ballroom, he said that playing those songs live was very exhausting emotionally because he was reliving the worst time of his life, But by Diorama, he'd had a whole host of other struggles in his life, and the Neon Ballroom songs didn't seem to affect him as much as the Diorama songs. Because we all know that Daniel doesn't dwell on the past and doesn't like to repeat himself. So that's why in later live shows, when they played earlier songs, Daniel would sort of make fun of the songs. Like his death metal vocals in Freak, or even his exaggerated falsetto in some of the later versions of Anna's song. I don't know if that was his way of dealing with playing songs he had grown out of or what. Dom goes on to say, Also, just for giggles, I feel like Daniel came up with the whole polystyrene melts in the sun line 
after accidentally putting a styrofoam plate in the microwave to reheat food and saw that the plate completely melted. That's quite an imagination you have there, Dom. You're right that a styrofoam plate would melt in the microwave, but unless you have any interview where he talks about that, I'll have to chalk that up to possibly, but not likely. Anyway, thank you, Dom. That gave me a lot to think about. And that's the end of the show. Thank you to everyone who wrote in and got involved. It really warms the cockles of my heart to know that I'm doing something that people do appreciate. So that's the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I know it's a big change of format for this show, but hopefully you got to learn some things or at least hear my thoughts on things. As always, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell anyone who might be interested. Rate, review, subscribe, email me, follow me on social media, share my content and tag me in it. All the info is in the description. Thanks again for listening. See ya.